Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Each year, the opioid epidemic continues to take the lives of thousands of citizens in the United States. Transitions of care in hospitalized patients creates points of increased risk for longer lengths of stay, as well as new chronic opioid use after discharge. Thankfully, with education and awareness, providers can identify ways to reduce harmful outcomes. Today, I'd like to welcome four pharmacist colleagues to review literature describing appropriate language for use disorders, identify risk points for transitions of care, and outline interventions for successful patient interactions. Please welcome Drs. Julie Cunningham, Zishan Rizwan, Christy Jen, and Christina Ruscott to today's episode. We're gonna jump right into our patient case. So introducing our patient to you, we have a 56 year old female who was admitted through the emergency department following an opioid overdose. Past medical history includes chronic back pain following a work-related injury about 15 years ago, depression, anxiety, but currently not taking medications and a previous history of substance use disorder. Pain management regimen includes the following opioid medication, which she's taken for the last couple of years. Extended release oxycodone, 40 milligrams every 12 hours. Oxycodone immediate release, 10 milligrams every three hours as needed for breakthrough pain. And on average, she uses about four tablets a day. We'll continue with this patient theme throughout our entire presentation today and continue to come back to her. We're gonna start though with an audience participation question. So this is on Poll Everywhere. So you can open up the app on your device or your phone and um, use the Mayo RX code and enter your response. So our goal here is to get an idea how familiar folks are with calculating oral morphine milligram equivalents. And this is kind of how we level set to identify how much opioids patients are actually taking. So if you recall, she's on extended release 80 milligrams a day and immediate release 40 milligrams a day. So is her morphine equivalents 120, 150, 180, 240? Or if you don't know how to calculate an MME, please go ahead and select that. And we'll give everybody an opportunity to weigh in here, which is fine. A lot of you are saying you don't know how to calculate, but the other most common response is 180 milligrams. And that is actually the correct answer. So this table is adapted from the CDC's opioid conversions. And you'll see oxycodone close to the bottom and it's one and a half times oral morphine. So 120 a day is what she was taking. So her morphine milligram equivalents would be 180 milligrams a day. And then here are just a few other examples of common um, opioids that are used in the treatment um, for chronic pain and for acute pain. So as we continue on with our case, one of our learning objectives was to identify non-stigmatizing language that we should be using when talking about opioids 
about our patients and to our patients. So listen and try to pick up on the words that are used in this presentation that would represent uh, stigmatizing language. So this was how the patient was presented at bedside rounds. SA is a 56-year-old female who presented to the ED last night after being found unresponsive by her husband. He reported to the EMS team that she was drunk, having consumed half a liter of vodka in combination with her usual opioid dose. Naloxone was administered at the scene. Mrs. A has a history of recurrent opioid misuse and a remote history of cocaine abuse. She recently has been discussing transitioning her opioids to MAT with her primary care provider. Additionally, she suffers from depression and anxiety, but currently is on no medication. All right, so taking us to our next audience participation question. So within these different language that were used in that presentation, select which one would be considered most appropriate when describing the patient. Is it A, drunk, B, history of cocaine abuse, C, opioid misuse, D, medication assisted therapy or MAT, or E, suffers from depression and anxiety? You're selecting the appropriate answer, which is C, opioid misuse is the correct answer. And we're gonna go through all the others and kind of talk through the language used. So it's important the language that we use. It's not just important because language can be stigmatizing and convey negative judgments to our patients, but language can also impact the care that patients uh, decide to receive. It may make a difference if a patient actually goes and fills that medication prescription or shows up at the provider visit based on the words that we're using and also the relationships that we develop with these patients. So each one of these rows correlates with the answers previously. And great to see no one selected drunk as being appropriate language. And of course, patients and um, lay individuals may use terminology such as drunk or drug abuser to describe uh, each other or themselves. But we wanna avoid those type of words as again, they can really convey negativity to the patient. So appropriate terminology, of course, would be intoxicated when describing that patient's use of alcohol. The next one, I don't think anyone selected either, which is good, but that term abuse, it's easy to use. It's easy to use to describe patients or their actions, but abuse, has that overlying connotation that there is actually a willful misconduct associated with the use of a particular medication. So when we're talking about illicit medications, the term use is appropriate. So in this case, a history of cocaine use disorder. Um, and if we're talking about the inappropriate use of prescription medications, we would use that terminology of misuse. So with her oxycodone, using more than that was prescribed or using it outside the way that was prescribed, we describe as opioid misuse. So the correct answer would be opioid misuse, but looking at that middle column there, another term that's often used inappropriately is substituting opiate for opioid. 
And we'll see this presentation, presentations will include this language. Um, medical literature includes this language. We use it when we're talking about opioids, but opiates actually is very focused and relates to those naturally occurring products such as morphine or heroin that come from that poppy plant, where opioid is a broader term and includes the synthetic, semi-synthetic products. So opioid would be appropriate terminology. So the next column, <clears throat> thinking about um, the patient moving away from oxycodone as hopefully she's had these conversations with her provider and recognizes that her use has been problematic and talking about using a medication such as methadone or buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. A very common term that we've heard and used regularly over the last decade has been medication-assisted therapy or MAT. And most of the larger organizations are encouraging us to move away from that terminology. As you think about the word assisted, and what that really means to assist. I might assist my husband in carrying our groceries into the house from the car, but maybe he carried five bags and I carried one bag. So assist has kind of that connotation that, you know, it, it's some help, but maybe it's really not a major player in that treatment. Patients often also think about um, medications for opioid use disorder as a substitution, substituting one opioid for another, and they may have resistance related to that instead of really identifying this as a life-saving medication treatment. And then finally, um, that terminology of suffers from. We want to use person-first language always, especially when talking about mental illness, um, as well as um, addiction-related disorders. And so when we use the term suffers, that has that overarching theme of um, pitying the patient or that the patient is more of a victim. Um, we wouldn't use this type of terminology when talking about other chronic medical conditions such as high blood pressure or diabetes. Um, we wanna use that person-first language. So hopefully these are things that you think about in your practice as you're interacting with others on the healthcare team, as well as when you have these interactions with the patient. And with that, we're gonna transition with our patient for our next part of our hospital stay. Thank you, Julie. Good morning, everyone. So the focus of my segment of the presentation would be essays stay in the ICU. So there has been a rapid rise in opioid epidemic across the United States, and it has had a detrimental impact. Now, this rise has also drawn the attention of the critical care community, because not only that we're seeing a rise in opioid overdose patients, but also we're seeing an increased number of opioid tolerant and opioid use disorder patients in the ICU. So I'd like to start off with a, an audience participation question. Uh, which of the following would increase SA's risk for developing iatrogenic opioid withdrawal syndrome in the ICU? A, history of alcohol use disorder. Emotional, B, emotional neglect by husband. C, opioid tolerance due to prolonged opioid use. D, age. E, diagnosis of depression and anxiety. So the answer is C, opioid tolerance due to prolonged opioid use. If you remember, our patient was taking OxyContin or extended release of oxycodone, 80 milligrams per day. 
and also PRN or uh, opioid, I'm sorry, oxycodone IR as needed, which averaged about 40 milligrams a day. Moving forward here, so the next part, we'll move on to defining opioid tolerance, opioid naive and opioid use disorder patients. So opioid naive patients are those who are not chronically receiving opioids on a daily basis. And according to Minnesota DHS, someone who has not had a, an opioid prescription in the last 90 days is categorized as an opioid naive patient. On the other hand, opioid tolerant patients are those who are chronically receiving opioids on a daily basis. According to FDA, the minimum dose required for a patient to be categorized as opioid tolerant is oxycodone 30 milligrams per day for seven days or more, or an equivalent dose of any other opioid for seven days or more. Moving on to opioid tolerance and we, we kind of mentioned earlier that there is an opioid epidemic, which is in rise, and there is inadequate pain control in the ICU is, is common. But the question is, why is it difficult to manage pain in opioid-tolerant patients? So fundamentally, there are two reasons for that. One is opioid-induced tolerance, and the second reason is opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So opioid-induced tolerance can be defined as a progressive lack of response to a drug. In this case, that's morphine or an opioid. Um, as you can see on the picture on the right-hand side, that picture is for a chronic opioid user. And you can see that there is an accumulation of an opioid ligand in the synaptic cleft or the space between the two, two neurons. Due to that, there is down-regulation of the brown opioid receptors. And because of that, there is more opioid dose needed, needed to cause the same effect. Moving on to opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So again, this is a chronic opioid user. And as you can see, there are the, the orange balls, which is represented, um, which, is, which, is, which are glutamate, uh, and there's an accumulation of glutamate in the synaptic cleft. What that does is it increases the sensitivity of the NMDA receptors. There's also, the, oh, there's also another reaction taking place at the same time, which is the green opioid molecules uh, interacting with the starfish on the right. I'm kidding, that's, a, uh, that's actually a glial cell. So what happens is when opioids interact with the glial cells that releases immune, immune reaction in which pain signal is actually uh, sensitized. It causes uh, more pain signals to, uh, it increases the number of pain signals due to that. Since we're, talking about, since we're talking about tolerance here, it is important to mention what is opioid use disorder. So DSM, according to DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for opioid use disorder, it is a pattern of opioid use leading to clinically significant impairment as ma manifested by at least two of the following occurring within a 12 month period. So in our case, um, SA had criteria number eight, nine and 10, which was recurrent opioid use, continued opioid, opioid use, despite knowledge of having a persistent 
or recurrent psychological problem and also tolerance. She was an opioid tolerant patient. Now moving on to consequences of undertreatment. We mentioned earlier that inadequate pain control is common in ICU. And we went over the mechanism why it's so difficult to control pain in these patients in the ICU. But inadequate pain control in ICU also leads to physiological and psychological issues. So essentially what happens is pain activates uh, the autonomic nervous system, which then increases the catecholamine circulating in the body and also leads to, that also leads to vasoconstriction and impaired tissue perfusion. And that leads to increased myocardial demand, activates the RAST, which is your renin-angiotensin-aldosterone uh, system. Um, and that releases cytokine as well. The next thing is psychological issues. Pain also causes long-term and short-term psychological issues such as anxiety, depression, delirium, sleep deprivation, et cetera. Moving on to the socioeconomic impact of undertreatment of pain. There are four main points that I'd like to discuss. One is, the first one is decreased quality of care uh, patient and patient satisfaction. It has been shown that 80% of ICU patients have painful memories from endotracheal intubation in the ICU. And 38% remember pain as the worst ICU memory even six months later. The next point is increased length of stay. In a multi-center perspective study, Pain et al. Uh, studied about 1,244 patients and concluded that patients who were continually monitored for pain and where pain was controlled adequately, there was a decrease of five days. So in terms of patient where pain was not controlled adequately, there was an increase of five days or this patient stayed five days longer in the ICU. The next point, increased mortality. A study by, uh, in 2017 by uh, Yamashita et al. concluded that pain, patient in, in the pain arm uh, had significant mortality as compared to the patients in control arm. And last but not the least, increased cost. A study showed that assessing sedation, analgesia, and delirium in the ICU can save up to $9,000 per patient per hospitalization. Now moving on to SA's transition to general care. So there are essentially two things to, to consider. One is iatrogenic opioid withdrawal syndrome. Now this is an area which is, uh, there's still data coming up. There's not a lot of data in this field yet. It's uh, in adults especially. It has been associated with increased mechanical ventilation days and ICU length of stay. Now, it's, it's, it's not fair for me to discuss this in one slide, but again, this deserves its, 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 uh, another presentation altogether. But as the name suggests, opioid withdrawal syndrome or iatrogenic opioid withdrawal syndrome is an opioid withdrawal syndrome indicated by tachycardia, tachypnea, irritability, anxiety, those kind of things. Um, risk factors related to opioids include high doses of opioid, prolonged use of opioid, high weaning rate of opioid infusion, and of course, opioid-tolerant patient, which in our case, SA was an opioid-tolerant patient. So what are the strategies to mitigate the risks of opioid, iatrogenic opioid withdrawal syndrome in the ICU? 
Number one, use of multimodal analgesia and non-pharmacologic interventions. Avoid rapid drug discontinuation. As mentioned earlier, if a patient is on high-dose fentanyl, hydromorphone, uh, the recommendation is to gradually wean these patients off of these uh, opioids. Third, ensure appropriate opioid dosing. When the patient comes to ICU, are we looking at their home meds? Are we trying to figure out how much opioid this, these patients were taking at home and starting opioids accordingly in the ICU? And last is considering opioid substitution therapies such as ketamine and methadone for weaning opioids. And the last adverse consequence of, uh, of ICU care is CIRP or chronic intensive care related pain. This is a persistent pain, uh, newly developed pain, which, which occurs at least six months after ICU admission and it lasts for about three to six months. And this is one of the main reasons for ICU patients becoming addicted to opioids post-discharge. Risk factors include uncontrolled pain, pain of high intensity and pain of longer duration, which is majority of your ICU patients. And the recommendation uh, for post-ICU discharge to treat pain in these patients is opting for a multimodal approach for pain treatment. And that is it from my side. Our next presenter would be Christy. Thank you, Dr. Rizwan. So let's talk about SA's transition from the ICU to the floor. On the next slide, before we begin, let's start with an audience participation question. Among all of the options below, which are strategies that the care team can employ during transitions of care for someone like SA who is on opioids? Do we evaluate if opioid is needed from the ICU to the floor? Assess pain using validated scales? Identify if patients at risk for overdose? Provide overdose and naloxone education or all of the above? This question obviously is, is is, is obvious and in the subsequent slides, I will explain why all of those different strategies are critical to the management of pain um, or patients on opioids during all points of transition. In the next slide, before we explore the management of chronic opioid patients like SA, what happens to our opioid naive patients when they're admitted to the ICU? As you know, opioids are the mainstay of an ICU stay, whether or not it's for the management of pain or analgo sedation, particularly for mechanical ventilation. In this multi-center retrospective review, the aim was to um, determine the impact of analgo sedation in opioid-naive patients admitted in the ICU. What they wanted to determine was um, if there was a relationship with opioid administration in the ICU with opioid prescription at discharge and long-term opioid use. What the authors uh, discovered was that the only predictor for long-term opioid use was actually receiving a discharge opioid prescription. Subsequently, they did look at risk factors for receiving that opioid prescription at discharge, and these are listed as follows. So patients on a with a history of illicit drug use, longer non-ICU length of stay, and decreasing age. So in the next slide, there was another retrospective review that evaluated um, opioid prescription at various points of transition. So from the ICU or intermediate care unit to the floor and the floor to discharge. What they wanted to determine was that um, if there was any association of um, any of these different points of transition and receiving opioid continuation at discharge, as we know at the previous study, again, the risk factor for long-term opioid use was receiving that prescription. What the authors found was that the hospital length of stay in a cumulative 
hospital opioid dose, dose received was associated with receiving that prescription for an opioid at discharge. In fact, what the authors discovered is that much like any other medications that are initiated during an ICU stay, such as PPIs, antipsychotics, opioids are also inappropriately described at discharge, particularly for those opioid naive patients. In fact, they recommend that all healthcare providers should really evaluate all points of transition of care, particularly from the ICU, and determine if any of these medications have appropriate indications. As Dr. Rizwan mentioned previously, definitely important to consider, was the patient on opioids prior to admission? Was the opioid prescribed in the ICU for pain or analgo sedation? Now that they're on the floor, what is the current pain scale? And is the patient a candidate for IV to PO opioid conversion? So in going back to SA on the next slide, we've established that these are her listed past medical history. As Dr. Cunningham mentioned previously, the patient was receiving 100 mil 180 milligrams of morphine equivalents of oxycodone prior to admission. What we've also discovered after having conversation with the patient was that she was also using her husband's diazepam supply to self-medicate her back spasms. And as listed there, she was taking an average of five milligrams per day. As a clinician, you evaluate the patient's opioid consumption during the ICU stay, and that's, it's as listed as follows. Now on the floor, you speak with a nurse and the nurse reports that the first 48 hours of the patient's stay the patient actually tried to reduce her opioid consumption to just 10 milligrams a day with an average pain score of five to six. In fact, the patient has been asking for an order for a lidoderm patch in addition to just focusing on acetaminophen and adsense, again, with her goal of reducing her oxycodone consumption. In the next slide, there are three key things that one should really employ um, as you're managing patients with pain during transitions of care. Now, obviously, for this specific slide, this was focused on our chronic opioid patients, but these can also be employed in patients with um, who are opioid naive. It is critical for us to identify patients' acute pain early. As Dr. Rizwan mentioned previously, undertreatment of pain can also have adverse consequences. Focusing on non-pharmacologic therapies such as ice or heat packs, massage therapy, music therapy can help alleviate the patient's pain and potentially reduce opioid consumption. Alternatively, using an alternative to opioids targeting different receptors that are associated with pain such as NSAIDs, acetaminophen, membrane stabilizing agents, and even regional anesthesia has been shown to really help decrease opioid consumption. As it was elucidated earlier, SA has expressed interest in reducing her opioid consumption. Therefore, as a clinician, it is critical for us to sit down with the patient and engage them in a shared decision-making process. Having that active discussion regarding their expectations of pain management is going to be critical to the success of this patient's stay in the hospital as well as at discharge. In addition to that, early education is going to be critical, as well as addressing their concomitant mental health conditions, as these are associated with aberrant opioid behaviors, including leaving AMA. Opioid tapering is not going to be a perfect process. Um, obviously, you're going to have to individualize that tapering plan. Even though CDC and many other articles have provided the usual frequency of that opioid reduction by about 5 to 20% every four weeks. You need to expect that there's, it's not going to be a perfect process and there will be a lot of pauses and restarts. 
What you do need to know and what you need to explain to the patient is that as long as you're minimizing opioid withdrawal symptoms, but also improving function, when you get to reach a safe dose or a minimal dose needed or the lowest dose at an extended interval, that's when you know you're successful with that opioid tapering process. And the next slide, there are additional resources available within Mayo Clinic. This has been uh, developed by the Mayo Clinic Opioid Stewardship Program, as well as the Experience Training, Education, and Coaching. And essentially, um, this is a guide for having these challenging conversations about pain with our patients. I would highly recommend saving the link as um, outlined below and saving it or keeping it in your back pocket in the event that you should need it in the future. In the next slide, one of the, um, again, the impact of early education is, and also using appropriate language is to help reduce stigma. As we know, providing naloxone and even providing overdose education and naloxone education has been associated to save lives. Explaining to the patient that as low as taking six tablets of oxycodone, five milligrams a day, that's an equivalent of 50 morphine equivalents will put the patient at risk for an overdose. And so it is critical for the patient to have naloxone readily available, much like anyone with a history of anaphylaxis, um, having an EpiPen readily available in the event of an adverse um, outcome. So in the next slide, Ask Mayo Expert does have recommendations of when to prescribe naloxone. Now, this was derived from the CDC and HHS guidelines, and as you can see here, our patient essay meets five of the eight criteria. What we need to keep in mind is that for every opioid prescription or refill, as we're prescribing naloxone, it is important for us to educate the patient on how to use it, as well as their family and caregivers. Again, much like our EpiPen, it is important for us to encourage having naloxone readily available within their person or even at home or in the car or at, at work or at school. It is critical for us to provide this early education with our patients to help reduce stigma, to avoid um, opioid-related adverse events and ultimately mortality. In this next slide, the Mayo Clinic Enterprise um, Opioid Stewardship uh, Workgroup have developed key metrics based upon CDC guidelines as well as state rules. Now, as a provider and even as a pharmacist or other clinician, it is critical for us to evaluate our adherence to any of these key metrics. This year, the, um, the Opioid Stewardship Workgroup have identified as um, having 90 morphine milliequivalents per day for patients as one of the key things to monitor and ensuring that these patients are um, have an associated naloxone on file on their med list. So as you can see on the second box there, uh, these are the raw number of patients who have the high doses of, of, ox or, um, of medication without naloxone on board. We're also monitoring patients who are prescribed opioids and benzodiazepines, again, because those patients are at risk of over-sedation and other adverse outcomes. And then lastly, the goal for the enterprise by the end of this year is to actually increase our opioid compliance up to 90% um, with our PDMP review. So as a key takeaway in this last slide, what I really want to emphasize to this group is to, to really ensure that we're monitoring our opioid stewardship key metrics dashboard. This helps to hold ourselves accountable in ensuring that we're preventing or employing mitigation strategies um, for our opioid patients. 
for every transition of care, ensuring that we're evaluating medications, indications, and updating those medication lists, removing old medications that are no longer needed or used, identify patients at risk for overdose or other aberrant behaviors, Again, early education and prescription of naloxone to reduce that stigma and, pre and um, prevent ovio, um, opioid oversedation. And lastly, this is an option that one could employ, which is referral for transition of care medication management consult upon discharge. And so we move on to Dr. Westcott as she describes discharge for essays process. All right, and so on to discharge for essay. We'll start with an audience participation question. So what resources are not available on the Mayo Clinic Opioid Stewardship webpage? A, opioid dashboard key metric data. B, Ask Mayo Expert algorithms for acute and chronic opioid prescribing. C, the DEA opioid disposal location search tool. D, opioid tapering guidelines. Or E, the community pharmacy opioid toolkit. And in case you're not sure where to find the Opioid Stewardship webpage, you can type opioid into the Mayo Clinic search bar, and that will bring up the Opioid Stewardship webpage. Correct answer here, opioid dashboard key metric data, that is actually in Epic. It's referenced on the Stewardship webpage, but the actual data is available within Epic. Uh, each of the other choices are all available on that Opioid Stewardship webpage. The Minnesota Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement has support tools like opioid risk assessment. So returning to our case, SA is at higher risk of opioid overdose and respiratory depression due to history of overdose, uh, alcohol use, history of substance use disorder, high dose opioids, concurrent benzodiazepine use, and unresolved mental health concerns. The toolkit also offers risk mitigation strategies like frequent follow-up and naloxone provision. The 2022 CDC guidelines highlight research showing that naloxone reduces opioid overdose deaths without increasing opioid-related acute care use. That disputes the idea that naloxone could increase risky behavior. Opioid risk can be recognized at different points in pharmacy workflow that can trigger a patient or provider consultation. A pharmacist focus group found that heavy workload can be a barrier to detailed risk review. And similarly, prescribers may have limited time for opioid risk review and discussion. In outpatient pharmacy, patient consultation usually takes place at the end of workflow, where patients might be anxious to depart. That doesn't need to limit conversations though, as naloxone can be picked up later or mailed. In case anyone thought COVID might've scared patients away from medications that reduce breathing, 2020 saw the greatest number of opioid overdose deaths ever. And as the data are being compiled for 2021, it looks like 2021 will exceed 2020. Additionally, almost all benzodiazepine-involved deaths also involved opioids. And benzodiazepine-involved deaths are increasing. We need to make sure patients with high MME opioids or concurrent benzodiazepine use are made aware of naloxone availability. Naloxone has become more available thanks to pioneering efforts that have paved the way for pharmacist prescribing. Pharmacist prescribing is an awesome accomplishment and we want to demonstrate our utility in this activity. We know naloxone reduces overdose deaths. Let's look at the formulations that we prescribe. Nasal naloxone is easiest to administer. It's just one spray into one nostril, doesn't need to be primed. The eight milligram nasal naloxone is a better option 
or might be a better option for patients with high dose overdose or where fentanyl might be present. Injected naloxone works more quickly and is less expensive. We counsel our patients on overdose prevention, recognition, and management, reminding them that the responder needs to call 911, place the patient on the floor, how to administer, and then place the patient into the recovery position. That's sideline with the top knee forward, hands behind the head. That will help to prevent aspiration in case the naloxone triggers uh, withdrawal, which can precipitate nausea and vomiting. We can help our patients feel more comfortable accepting naloxone by comparing it to an EpiPen, a fire extinguisher, or a seatbelt. Good to have just in case and not representing any assumption of misuse. And we can remind our patients to get rid of medications that won't be used. An authorized take-back location is always the best option for disposal. But if that's not convenient or available, uh, opioids can be flushed. Many pharmacies also offer drug disposal bags like the Terra bags. Stigma. Perceived stigma can prevent our patients from seeking treatment. In one study, a majority of patients received no treatment for substance use disorder in the month following opioid overdose. These were young people just establishing their life trajectory. And almost none of them received the most effective treatment with medications for opioid use disorder, like buprenorphine. FindTreatment.gov has a search tool where patients can find treatment options in their area that offer buprenorphine. The Community Pharmacy Opioid Toolkit is available on the Opioid Stewardship webpage, and it has tips for talking to patients and providers about opioids. It also offers links to virtual recovery resources like Narcotics Anonymous. Some patients might be better served by the Mayo Clinic Pain Rehabilitation Center, which offers team-based care to eliminate pain medications and improve quality of life. Essay had a discussion with her doctor about treatment. What could the pharmacy have done to bolster that conversation? We could have asked, how's your pain, to open the conversation. We know patients might need time to see the benefit of tapering off opioids or carrying naloxone, but we can plant the seed and we can water seeds that others have planted. So in summary, it's important to recognize and document opioid use early in admission and at transitions of care. And we need to be prepared to talk to patients without stigma about opioid concerns, disposal, naloxone, and community resources. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.